Welcome back to the What's Your One More podcast. I'm your host, Quentin Harris, and today I am joined with what I would consider to be a college funding consultant specialist. I'm very excited because the timing of this is just ideal. You know, we're in the we're in the hunt for college season right now, and it's exciting to have Brad Baldwidge on the show. Brad, welcome to the show today. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, this is exciting. I know we've had to postpone this one a couple of times, so it's great to have you in here. And, uh, you know, for those of you who don't know Brad, I got to tell you what, he's a certified financial planner, college funding consultant, and chief podcaster at Taming the High Cost of College. He has over 25 years plus experience working with families and helping them with the college planning process, specifically in the late stage planning, where he seeks to significantly reduce their college costs. And he specializes in helping students into the admission process to their preferred school and realizing their college dreams dreams. You know, this is going to be an exciting one, Brad. I'm very excited about this topic, Manor, because I have a 17-year-old, soon to be 16-year-old, and I'm surrounded by a bunch of parents that have the exact same thing going on. And we're in the hunt for college season right now. Applications are getting ready to be due. There is a lot going on. And, uh, you know, this is this is kind of high high stakes environment. This is where it gets real. You know, you take kids and they start to become adults at this point. So, you know, you've been doing this for 25 years and we were talking pre-show about some of the changes. We're going to get into it, but let's just let's just kick it off. I have this question that's just burning in the back of my head here. How many families, percentage-wise, that you work with save enough for college? Oh, it's a very small percentage. <laughs> I would say, you know, ten, less than 10%. Yeah. I mean, and what does enough mean? That's another challenge, of course. But college has gotten so crazy expensive that most families, you know, don't just have a big pile of money that, and they've got it all figured out. It's certainly not the ones that seek me out and ask for help, right? <laughs> I guess if you had a big pile of money and it was no problem, you probably weren't looking for someone like me then either. Yeah, and someone like you is, you know, it, it, 25 years ago, I got to imagine your services were so specialized that, that you know, it was like, hey, have you heard of what Brad does? And today, like, you are sought after. Like, your services are required in the process. And, and I'm learning this as a father right now that, you know, when I applied for school, there was no online. You fill out the application, you, you did the process, you turn it in, you hope you get the uh, approval letter. It's a whole process now. It's a whole database. And it's quite overwhelming. And having a guide such as yourself is crucial in this process for applying for colleges. So let's start from the very beginning. What's the biggest mistake a parent like me may make and when's when do we need to start what do we need when do when do we start engaging your services and in this process right so as soon as possible okay. for most people because by the time you're thinking about it for most families you're a little bit late already so i encourage you know and so let's talk about the timeline so let's the timeline it. is there's what i would call early stage and late stage planning okay so early stage planning is i've got a two-year-old or hey we're pregnant or whatever. And you say, well, maybe we should set up some sort of savings plan or talk about what, what our goals for college are. And that's all well and good. But then you get to what I would call late stage planning, which is you've got a high school kid, maybe freshman, sophomore, ideally, but most of the time, you know, a lot of time I'm hearing from, you know, juniors and seniors saying, oh my God, what are we going to do? And is, and is that more about savings or is that more about the application process at that point? Right. It's, it's more about the application process. Exactly. So late stage planning is you may have a big pile of money and you want to use it efficiently, or more likely you have a small pile of money or no money at all. And you're saying, now what are we going to do? Mm -hmm. um, and college is expensive and there's lots to do now. We're, right, we're visiting, we're trying to, the student needs to figure out what they want to be when they grow up. And they, maybe they've got to do testing and applications and essays. And the parents need to get involved in, you know, will we qualify for need-based aid and merit aid and what's our budget? And 
how much do we actually have saved and do we have an extra thousand a month for this or three thousand a month for this or what's what's our realistic budget how are we going to be fair we've got three or four kids how's that going to fit into you know if i spend 50 or a hundred thousand on the first child does that mean i have to spend the same amount on all of them mm-hmm. you know how am i going to be fair all that kind of stuff and then there's the stuff that the families do together where students and parents are typically visiting okay and doing college research and you know again trying to work together to to make all this come together into a hey this is a good school at a good price students going to be happy there they're going to launch and you know it'll launch them and they'll be successful i mean that's the, the ultimate goal that all parents have right is it's not any one thing per se other than that broad category of great fit for them they'll they'll be happy there and then in the end it'll also be a good step in the right direction for wherever it is they're trying to go. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I'd like to break this into, kind of unpack that, break this into two categories. Let's let's start with the first one, which is two years old, early stage. Now we're saving, we're pregnant. Let's, let's start there. Uh, I think for a lot of parents, that's the probably overlooked part, right? You know, because you say, we'll do it next year. You keep putting it off and next thing you know, they're, they're 16 years old. So let's start with is what are what are some of the suggestions as a financial planner you have out the gate? Because traditionally speaking, we hear 529, 529, 529. Let's start there. Like, what's the best thing you recommend or what are some things that steps that parents should take at that time? Right. And yeah, so 529s are certainly a, a good option. We okay. use them quite often, but oftentimes we pair them with other strategies, whether it's um, Roth IRAs or individual investments or bank account. And there's all kinds of different, you know, so 529 is a good tool. It's mm-hmm. not the only tool. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so, you know, building that plan where it makes sense. But I think the other biggest challenge for most families is it's my bigger garage theory. I don't care how big your garage is. It's always full. Okay. Because in general, you don't think about, downsizing or throwing something away or whatever until the garage is full. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people have one car garages and they're frustrated, envy the two car garage people. And the people that have two cars say, well, I need three. And the people that have three say, I need four. It, it's the same that happens with your, your income, right? As your income climbs, if you learn how to spend it before you learn how to save it, it's going to be a challenge. I've had families, you know, with 17 and 18 year olds earning $200,000 a year say, wow, college is expensive. We, there's no way we can fit this into our budget. And then the next person I talk to earns 100000 and they say, college is expensive. I don't think we can afford it. But if I earn 200000 it would be really easy, right? <laughs> right after I just talked to somebody that who earns 200000 that told me it's not easy. Right, right. Um, so there is no magic. I think what happens, you know, and that, how do we apply this to the early stage? Mm-hmm. Well, college is expensive and you're going to have to make some decisions and say, okay, well, right now we have daycare, so it's crazy expensive. We can't afford to save. So when daycare is over, then we'll save. Well, then you actually have to deliver on that. Right. When when daycare is over, kids don't get cheaper, right? I mean, so first of all, you know, kids never get cheaper. Um, So save now if you can, but if you can't, you know, make a plan that you have to stick to. But the reality of it is you're going to live in a smaller house because you want to spend money on college. You're going to have smaller vacations because you want to save money for college. Mm-hmm. And that's the reality is you kind of have to get get okay with that. That if you're going to spend two or three or $400,000 someday when your kids have grown up and are off to college, either you save it now or you pay the price later. I and mean, that those are the options, right? And some combination of 
taking it out of current cash flow, saving it ahead of time, taking out loans and paying them off. You know, and again, I have people that earn relatively decent living say we can't afford anything. We're just going to take a bunch of loans. And it's like, well, wait a minute. If you can't afford anything, how are you going to pay these loans back? Correct. When you have no free cash flow, a loan is not a solution. It's just delaying the inevitable. It kicks it down the road. And that's where I think a lot of people get in trouble. Yeah, no, I love that. I love that line. Yeah. When it comes to early stage, again, you know, typically, you know, a couple hundred dollars a month might get you where you need to go per student starting day one. You know, so when you have a, a one-year-old, you start saving 200 a month, you'll have a decent pile of money by the time they're 18, assuming you put it into reasonable, you know, investments and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. And that could work to where maybe you have a, a third to a half saved. And then you can supplement that with, you know, a lot of times you're in your peak earning years about the time the kids are, you know, there's a lot of 45 and 50 year olds that are, you know, at their careers going pretty strong right now mm-hmm. while the kid, you know, while the kids are going into school. So they may have a little extra cash flow again. If, and if they've learned how to save it before they spend it, <laughs> life is good. If, if you go out and buy new cars for all the kids and, they get involved in private schools and all the sports teams they can get, you know, and again, that's the reality, right? There's some families out there that are spending 10, 20, 30, $40,000 a year on the kids for things that aren't even necessarily college, right? It could be private schools, could be the traveling volleyball team, mm-hmm. it could be the dance, the cheer, the gymnastics, the, you know, all kinds of things that you can spend crazy amounts of money. Yeah, this is a this is a great topic because you know here in Florida, and I know there's 14 states that do this. I think Florida probably out of the ones I've researched has one of the more unique ones and one of the oldest ones is the prepaid. And uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, not every state offers that, but there's a Florida prepaid here, which you know allows you to essentially the day the child's born lock in the tuition rate for that student at that time, which offsets any future right. inflation cost, et cetera. You can buy up to four years, four years worth of housing, technology fees. It's a, it's a pretty, and you compare it with a 529, just as what you said there. Um, but I think the biggest thing is is doing it. Right, absolutely. And, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of those where you prepay. Mm-hmm. I've had a, a number, you know, I've worked with enough families that have, you know, don't live in Florida anymore. And they say, <laughs> well, I've got a prepaid in Florida and my kid can go to Florida schools at a good price. But we're a long ways away from Florida now, so that's not so great, you know, et cetera. So I like generally the the more portable five to nine in general, and there are are exceptions, of course. Um, but understanding what you're getting into is important. And then not all states' programs are as good as other states, and right, and, you know, that's not a knock on Florida. I think there's one of the better ones, but there's a couple of them that many of the states have gotten out of that yeah. because it was hard to manage and it was hard to do. Um, and then the other thing is that college costs aren't going up as fast as they used to be. Mm. Um, the state's budgets, a lot of the state schools were heavily funded by the states, which made them relatively low cost. And then the states modified their budgets and stopped paying for it. So that we had a very dramatic increase in the last 15 years. That may or may not continue because, again, when it went from the state pays 75% to the state pays 22%, well, again, the state may not reduce their piece as much now going forward. Yeah. And the prices are so high now that mathematically, it's just not sustainable. Price people out of the market. People can't pay those even higher prices. So will it keep up with inflation? Perhaps. You know, Will it go substantially more than inflation? Maybe. I don't know. But when you look back, it was double inflation or triple inflation. Um, 
And the reality of it for college is, well, they raised the prices and we still, you know, the students still came. So they raised the prices again and they still came. So why not raise prices, right? Gucci raised the price of the bag and they still sold out. Yeah. Academia became a very profitable business. Uh, they knew, they saw the right. cost. They said, let's do this. And, and, you know, it's a business any way you look at it. So in the early phases right. were, it's really about making a budget and committing to it and then doing it, making the right. sacrifices to do it, or just be prepared for what's going to happen towards the end here, because not everybody's going to get a scholarship. That's just not going to happen. So the, the reality right. is prepare now. And if you save now, you can also use that money for something later on if they do get the scholarship. It's there if you need it. So then we're in the late planning. And this is where you specialize. We're talking about the freshmen. We're talking about sophomore. You were saying juniors and seniors. I heard you say that, which I was just shocked when I heard that we're that deep in the game. So that process changes a little bit. You're saving, but now we got to start thinking about applying uh, and applications and grades and everything. I mean, it just starts piling up at that point. So what advice do you offer to family members that are starting high school this year? I mean, we're school enrolls in a week and a half from now. This podcast will drop the day students start going to school. So freshmen, what do we offer for freshman families and their advice right now? Right. Well, it's time to get to work as the parents of a freshman. So essentially, if you look at the, you know, the timeline that colleges put out there, they have all their deadlines the senior year of high school. So the beginning of the senior year of high school is when you actually apply both for financial aid and admission. Okay. And then from there, you know, you get accepted, they give you offers. And then by the end of the senior year, you've picked your school and you're off, you know, and then through the summer, you you go, you're right. You get organized, you pick your dorm, you pick your meal plan. You figure out your roommate and load the van and off you go. So there are no deadlines junior year or sophomore year, but that's when we need to prep. Okay. So that we're ready for the senior year. And most families don't you know, understand how complicated it could be. And I encourage families, as an example, to consider visits sophomore year okay. just to get your feet wet. Is it a hardcore you've got to figure out what college you want to go to? No. But the typical 15, 16, 17 year old, when you say, do you want to go to a big school or a small school? They look at you and say, well, I don't know. I've not seen a big school or a small school. I don't know what we're talking about. So you might need to get out there and just show them around a little. And again, some students get on campuses because of sports or because mm -hmm. of summer camps or whatever. And that, you know, and that's good, but it's still not the same thing as the true visit where they, you know, take you around to the dorms and show you things. Right. Um, so just getting started earlier so you can spread that out, I think is the key for a lot of families where it's easy to put it off and ignore it till junior year. And then all of a sudden, you know, they start talking about, well, you got to take these tests and that kind of stuff junior year. And then it gets real. Mm -hmm. And by that time, you know, you're really in the thick of it. So again, a lot of times, and to be fair, there's a lot of students out there that really aren't ready to talk about college sophomore year and early junior year. They, they have some growing up to do. Sure. But that doesn't mean the parents can't do their piece whether the student's ready or not. I've had parents say things like, well, we can't do anything because little Johnny can't figure out what major he wants. It's like, well, there's things you can still do, right? You, right. you can go visit a couple of schools and look at a state school and look at a private school and look at something close and look at mm -hmm. something far and something big and something small so that they start having a frame of reference. And if you can't visit, well, then you got to do whatever you do instead of a visit, which would be, you know, their online tours and, information sessions and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, because these schools would love to send information to you. I mean, they will they will mail you to death information. You just call and ask them. Right. 
They'll flood you with it. Exactly. And you know, and to your point, you know, there's also tests that students can take, not tests, but it's like it's like it's like a personality assessment that tells them what lines mm-hmm. of field that they might be interested in so that they do kind of know where they're going in life and what their desires point towards. That way they can map themselves to the right degree in the right college. You know, one of the things I read on your website prior to this podcast I thought was really good was, you know, there seems to be this propensity where you were saying it earlier, you want to go to a big school, you want to go to a little school and the parents want them to go probably to a big school in some cases, right? We want you to have that college experience, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's the best school for that student. Um, you said one of the biggest mistakes is people commit to a school because it's it's the big school. It's where they want to go, but that wasn't the best school for their degree. It wasn't the best school financially for them. And I loved reading that and I was hoping you could elaborate a little bit on that as well for us. Right. Well, I think first of all, what you're really talking about is parental bias. I've Mm -hmm. seen it go both ways, right? Sure. I went to the big state university and I was in the stands cheering on our football team and I had a great time. Okay. But that isn't necessarily what your student wants to do. It might be, Mm -hmm. and that would be a great fit. But I've also had parents say, well, I went to that liberal, that small liberal arts school and it changed my life. Oh, okay. Right. So everybody's had, you know, there's been a lot of positive experiences at a lot of colleges And that's one of the reasons college is so expensive is there's a whole lot of parents out there that say college changed my life. College was fantastic. I want to give that to my kids. Well, it's very expensive. Okay, well, I'll sacrifice what it takes to make it happen. And as long as we have that attitude, right? Right. Harvard can charge any number they want. And there's enough wealthy people that will just say, I'll write the check and make it happen. Right. Um, Not all colleges can do that, of course, but they, you know, that's what's going on. And there's also a lot of politics around You know, college isn't expensive just because they're out gouging us. That's far from true. We're also saying all these colleges need to have mental health and they need to have, you know, physical health and they need to have a full time police force to keep our kids safe. And parents like all that, except for they don't want to pay for it. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, I want to have a police force that makes sure that kids aren't doing stupid stuff. But then when it comes to, well, then we need to have somebody run it and then we got to have some administrators administer it. And then we got to do it fair so we're not sued. And, you know, it's very complicated and (laughs) takes a lot of work. And then they put that on the bill. Right. (laughs) And we're unhappy. So, again, there's a lot of, you know, once you dive into the weeds, it's not so simple as to say, well, there's just a bunch of overpaid administrators making this expensive. Well, there are a bunch of administrators, whether or not they're overpaid is a different question. And the various laws and rules require them now. Yeah. So, you know, so if we don't like that, let's change the rules. And so that that goes back to your that goes back to your thing. Go toward the schools. Go see which one's the right one for you. You know, go to the big school, go to medium sized school, go to the little school, check them all out. And uh it's something that it's worth the road trip. Uh, it's it's a fun time and you, you you it even lightens your eyes as a parent. You know, you have you know, here I am mm-hmm. wearing I'm wearing my college shirt for you today. I'm wearing my alma mater. And so, you know, I have a bias, right? Because because of my alliance to where I went, right? How dare my daughter think she's going to University of Florida? However, she, if she's lucky enough to get in there, I'm going to cheer them on and let her have a, you know and be the biggest Gator Dad you've ever seen. And I'm going to catch flack for saying that on here, by the way. But the the reality <laughs> is, all of my Tennessee people are going to just just strike me down for that one. But it's reality. You know, if you contribute to the school, you're a part of it at that point. But you know, um, that bias, that parent, that parental bias is really, really a thing. Cause I see that with a lot of parents right now. And I think sometimes, right. you know, here, here definitely over in, in the Southeastern conference, football is a way of life, then basketball and it goes on and on. So we also start, we start programming our kids at a very young age with that. Right. And that right. bias rolls deep in there. And so, you know, I, I think one of the things that as a parent I'm having to come to grips with is that, you know, 
maybe my daughter does go to Florida, but my son may go to a much smaller school and that might be the fit for him. You know, you're, you're really, at the end of the day, we want what's best for our children. We want them to have a path towards success. What we don't want them to do is drowning in debt because they chose that path. And, you know, right. I've been doing lending for over 22 years and I've seen students buried. I mean, just buried. And they're not even doing, they're, they're not even having a job that complements their degree. And you look mm-hmm. at this and it's almost a, a no way out on those student loans. Those things are, are treacherous. And, you know, one of the things that I really want to take some time to talk about on here is there are good student loans that, that are there to help you and that will give you just enough to complete college but not overpay you with this this extra money to do with as you may. I've seen that with a lot of student loans too. You know, and you were mentioned earlier, FAFSA is changing their their updating, if you may, or changing their guidelines for the application process. You know, so what's your recommendation to a family that can't stroke that check right away? You know, student loans are going to have to be a part of this equation to get to school and back. What what loans do you recommend um, out the gate that students should start looking for that may not be income based or they may be income based? But your your expert advice there, right? So, I mean, certainly there's the two federal programs that okay. the typical 18 year old rolling out of high school going off to college they're eligible for the direct student loan. So that's the loan to the student paid back by the student. Now the student can borrow 5,500 as a freshman, 6,500 as a sophomore, and 7,500 as a junior okay. senior. Okay. You know, you look at that and say, well, you know, the most expensive privates are 80,000, 5,500 is a drop in the bucket. Mm-hmm. And that's absolutely true. So, but that's all a typical student could borrow in their name without mom and dad being involved. Okay. And I think that's one important thing to realize is there is an adult in the room, hopefully, that's making these decisions. A student can't borrow $100,000 for an undergraduate degree all by themselves. That's correct. Mom or dad need to be co-signing. Or mom and dad could be borrower, which leads us to the next loan, which is the plus loan, which is a loan to the parents paid back by the parents. The student's not involved. So it doesn't go in the student's credit at all at that point. It's just mom and dad's credit. Okay. And that's called the plus. So mom and dad, and this is what happens when planning fails and you get all the way to the end and you say, oh my God, this school is $50,000 and we have nothing saved, but they're offering us this plus loan and we just sign here and it's taken care of. (laughs) And that works, of course, parents and a lot of parents end up signing because they feel like, well, we didn't do this well and it's not the kid's fault. It's our fault. So we're going to take the hit. It's a guilt signature. And which, you know, again, is probably true. But the point being is the plus loan, the maximum plus loan is cost of attendance minus any other aid. So you get accepted to Harvard, 85000 If you don't get any aid, the student borrows five and mom and dad borrow 80. Done. It's covered. It's not a great, it's not, you know, not what I'm recommending, but right. it, it works and it can be a last ditch effort. Um, so then we circle back around to, well, how much should we spend on college? And that's where, you know, for most families, what you might want to do is get an idea of what it would look like at your local state school. Okay. And again, if you've got the top student, then what's your top school? You know, so what's your top state school, right? Like Florida's got a lot of state schools and sure. some of them are highly competitive. And not realistic for some students. So don't use that school. Use the one that's realistic. You're right. Um, you know, and the big states are all like that. California, Texas, they all have really top-notch schools. And then they have schools for the masses too. Mm-hmm. So that's a know, great way of putting it, that, by the way. Understand what I just said, figure that out, <laughs> and then find the appropriate schools 
for your student. Yeah. And I think if you live in your state, you know exactly what we're talking about here. Top tier school, you know, and then the one for the, the masses, right? And by the way, the one for the masses, it's a great school. It's, there's nothing wrong with that. I want to be abundantly clear with that, but it's the path that you're going to have to figure out works financially for you, more importantly for your student. And, you know, right. and, and as an employer in the job market, very rarely in my field do I hear people go, oh, wow, they graduated from here. We got to hire them. I think the days of that, now you may find an allegiance to them because you're like, oh, hey, you know, you know, go Vols, go Gator, whatever, and you find that allegiance, but it doesn't mean you're going to hire them because of that. There's so many other traits that go into that, that it, the school now is not, and I'm, I don't know if this is right, but the school is not as, it doesn't pop off the resume like it used to. That's what I'm trying to say. Right. You know? And, yeah. And well, in some cases it never did. And in other cases it always does. Right. So there's a few of those clubs, right? If you want to be president of the United States. There you go. You probably want to go to the Ivy League if you can, because yeah, yeah. it'll just make you know you make the right connections and you right, and it'll just make your life a little easier. Mm -hmm. If you want to be a lawyer in where I live here in Milwaukee, you could probably go to Marquette Law School and do just fine, right? So that's you know one of the challenges, right? Is what what's appropriate and the, do those names carry weight? But when's the last time you went, you know? your doctor's office and then whoever the nurse or whatever is taking you back and you say well where'd you go to school right oh, you went there well never mind get away from me i'm not working with you send somebody else over here you went to the wrong school yeah um it doesn't happen right most of us don't care and it really only matters potentially for your first job right and, and then there's these clicks right you can get on wall street a little easier if you go to the right business schools and you can get to silicon valley a little easier if you go to the right tech firms and mm -hmm. And, so, and there's a, you know, there's a grain of truth to it, but the reality of it is you can get a lot of places with hard work doesn't necessarily have to be at, at, you know, this particular school or that school. So any school will do, but when you talk about state school, so the average state school costs 27,000 all in. So that's tuition, room and board, books, fees, beer, and pizza, the whole cost for a typical student for one year, one year, 27 grand, one year, <laughs> it's gone up a little bit. The average private school Costs fifty-seven thousand. Okay. Now both of these are the list price, though. And at both public and private schools, you'll get some scholarships potentially. You'll get some need-based aid. You'll get some merit aid. You'll get the loans and that kind of stuff. So if you look at a state school, you know you start with twenty-seven thousand. You knock off some, you know, some of that is books and travel and thing, mm -hmm. you know, and personal expenses that are already being paid, or maybe the student could just, you know, student has to earn enough to pay for their own pizza and their own whatever, right? So right. there's a certain amount the student can earn. Then the student can borrow 5,500. So maybe a student can earn 45, borrow 55. So 10,000 off 27 is down to 17. Okay. But, you know, so that mom and dad would have to pay if you don't qualify for any aid. And that would be- Or they get the plus loan that right. you described. Okay. Or get the plus loan. Now, 17,000 is reasonably affordable for people that don't get- and your income is going to be a hundred thousand plus, probably. Once mm -hmm. you have low income, they start getting things like Pell grants and other things. Where at the very low incomes, there's extra um, aid. So now it might cost five or six thousand out of out of the parents' pocket. Now again, five or six thousand when you're low income hurts a lot, and twenty five thousand when you're at one hundred fifty thousand hurts a lot. And then when you start going to the private schools, you know, the 50,000 or the 80,000, when you earn 300,000 a year, hurts a lot. Whole lot. Yeah. And that's kind of the way it's been designed, right? They kept raising the prices until it hurt so much people started saying no, and then they started backing off. 
right? And that's supply and demand kind of things, right? Where, so it's going to hurt everybody, you know, so the real question, you know, kind of becomes if you're giving up the lake home in order to pay a lot of crazy money on college, that's one thing. But if you're destroying your retirement or you're going to go deep in debt and you're, you know, you're going to be these people that can't get mortgages because they've got this student loan around their neck, mm-hmm. if that's where you're going, well, then maybe you should spend crazy amounts. Um, and there's, you know, and there's always the caveat, right? There's a certain group of the population. You know, another thing that drives me crazy is, you know, college for everyone, or we should do this as treating everybody as this big monolithic, you know, group, mm-hmm. right? But here's the reality, right? There's students out there that are going to do fantastic no matter what they do. They can borrow crazy amounts of money. They'll figure out how to make money and pay it off. And that they're just going to be successful no matter what happens. You know, the other end of the spectrum is there's these kids that just really probably shouldn't even go to college. It's not going to benefit them much. School of Hard Knocks is probably the better place for them. But where we can really make the difference, I think, is that group in the middle. Right. Where it's not a foregone conclusion that there are, you know, any path to success where. And the kids like where, oh, that science teacher in 10th grade. He, you know, got me hooked on this, and then I got interested in engineering, and that just changed my life. Or I went to this liberal arts school, and it expanded my mind so much, I started thinking differently, and I used those ideas to launch a business, or whatever. I mean, that's where you hear that type of stuff. Right. You know, it, it can be transformative, but it doesn't have to be crazy expensive to be transformative either. There's a lot of schools at a lot of different price points, and... Just because one is ranked seven spots higher on some ranking doesn't make it better. No, it uh, you know there's a lot, a lot of good paths and a lot of good directions that families can go, and people are looking for the shortcut though. So they go to the rankings, they say this one's ranked high. Let's just apply to this one, and we're off to the races. And then at the end, they say, "Oh my God, it's crazy expensive." And and that's where again putting the time and the effort. You're going to pay for college with money, but you're also going to pay for it with time and stress. So if I'm hearing you correctly, would it be would it be smarter for the for the student and the parent to parent at this point and give some advice and say, hey, listen, let's go in at these schools that that you're liking, right? That you're you're just gravitating towards it's the must have. And if you get in, you know, we get in. But let's also go in with a couple of, you know, four or five, what's the number of backup plans in there that that are a little bit more diversified in the range of cost and experience? And let's put a plan and let's apply for Let's apply for all of them. Like what, what, how many colleges would you recommend in that rod, like diversifying your application process, almost like a portfolio at that point? Right. Yeah. I encourage families. And again, it depends on the student, right? Okay. All of these things are, are always, well, they're really, but you know, if there's, again, you're, you're going to the low cost state schools and you already know, you know, you're not going to get much aid, but the prices are already low to begin with, or you're going to the local tech colleges or that type of stuff where you know, the numbers are low. Then maybe you don't have to apply to you know two or three year you low number. Okay. But if you're going to apply to ten schools where you have you're not even likely to get accepted, now you have to apply to five more where you will be accepted or where you're at least confident. You know, have some confidence, right? Sure. If you apply to Harvard, Yale, so forth and so on, you still need to have your backup schools or however you know different ways that you want to talk about it, right? So nothing wrong with applying for those reach schools. But the same can be said around the financial side of things, right? So right. you take a kid that can get accepted to Notre Dame, let's say, or some other relatively name brand school, they're going to be an academic 
going to be pretty strong. Mm -hmm. And because of that, they're going to qualify for merit aid at a lot of other schools that maybe don't have the cachet. So they might be able to go to a, um, a Marquette here in my, my town or a, again, and there's many schools out there, University of Denver or whatever, and might get a scholarship for 25000 or 35000 And then that same student might qualify for the presidential honors scholarship where there's, you know, seven of them at this particular college where their tuition is zero and their room and board is half price. Yep. Now, the school that they get that at doesn't have the prestige, right? You could just barely get accepted at Notre Dame. It doesn't mean you're a bad student. That means you're a good student because <laughs> that's all they take. Right. Right. And you're a fantastic student compared to your peers at some of these other schools. But the price is nearly zero, right? So all schools, not all, but many, many, many schools have a certain number of people on campus where they've got endowed scholarships of some sort, or they've got some sort of process where, hey, here's a bunch of kids that are going for free. Right. Or nearly free. They're getting a great deal. And they're, you know, two cuts above the average student at that school. And that's true until you get to the top schools. When you get to the Harvards and Yales, well, everybody there is a rock, a rock star. <laughs> so then they say, you know what? We don't offer merit aid at all. Everybody here is fantastic. So the schools at the top don't offer any merit aid. So parents, I have a lot of parents say, well, my student applied to this school and that school and this school, and they didn't get any aid at any of them. Yeah. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, they got accepted. Consider <laughs> yourself lucky. Because right. they, and they were never going to give you aid as far as academics. It was all based on the need-based process. Right. So if you were needing to get scholarships, well, you set yourself up for failure because they were never going to do that. Yeah. Now, these schools over here, they might have great scholarships. So it's understanding it's not just the list price, it's the net price. Well, and it goes back to that supply demand. You know, uh, these these places have a limited amount of supply, the ones you just named. So there's going to be a high demand and they know it and they, they charge what they want for it and they, they get it, you know, until, right. until they can't go any higher. You know, and that's a common theme. And again, but on the flip side, Stanford just announced that anybody that's any family that earns less than 100000 tuition and room and board will be zero. It'll be free. Because they have an endowment. Because the company, yeah, they got billions. <laughs> billions. And if you're under 150000 uh-huh. then tuition will be zero. Wow. Wow. And then, right. So based on that, if you can get into Stanford, price will be fantastic. And yeah. that's true of most of the elite schools. It'll be fantastic relative to the need-based aid at other places, right? So th- right. they're always very generous. So if you need aid at these schools, you know, it'll work out fantastic. It's where trying to find that balance of, well, if I'm not going to show a need, if your family earns a half million a year, mm-hmm. or two million a year or something, or has a lot of assets or whatever, and you're not going to get aid, get aid anywhere. Well, Harvard looks at you and says, you can afford to pay and yeah. you will pay. And if you say, well, I don't want to pay, well, that's a different question, right? <laughs> right? I don't want to pay 85,000. Well, then look at schools where you won't have to, because there's plenty of school kid that can get into Harvard can get into a lot of schools. Right. No. And there's many of them that won't charge 85,000. Yo, thank you so much for choosing us today. We're definitely not done with our podcast, but we are going to take a really short sponsor break and then we'll get right back to the show. I've been in the lending business for 20 years. I've seen many different lenders. During those 20 years, I recognized there's a difference between being an originator and an advisor. And the team at Bank of England is full of advisors. They take their time to understand your needs. They take the time to structure a mortgage for you and your family. And I cannot recommend them enough. If you're in the market to purchase a home, maybe it's a second home, maybe it's an investment property, 
or you're looking to refinance your current property that you live in, take a minute to work with the advisors at Bank of England Mortgage. They're a nationwide lender, and you can find your local branch at boemortgage.com. www.boemortgage.com. Because it's more than loans, it's people. Thanks so much for letting us give a shout out to our sponsor. All right, now back to the podcast. So let's let's talk a little bit about COVID and what it did to the universities. Um, you know, a theme that that we saw happen here specifically in our state is that COVID happened. We did the virtual learning off campus or students were on campus, but they weren't in the classroom. And there was this disenchantment of, hey, why in the hell am I paying these costs to go to this school, to sit in a dorm, to do virtual learning when I can go home and I can do an online learning with this same university at a much cheaper cost? And you kind of saw a, a migration pattern that happened there. Some of these universities heavily depend on that enrollment fee for their budgeting. They heavily depend on everything you described earlier for budgeting purposes. And we saw budgets get completely out of whack during COVID. Um, you know, I sit on a foundation board for a, a local university here, um, and we saw it, right? And we saw it happening. And I, we, you know, and because it's a state school, we got to see the other state schools and we saw it happening. And then what we saw to offset that, and I don't know if this is a national trend and, and you're going to be the expert here, was this, mat, it was almost like the gates opened. <laughs> come one, come all. And there was a lot of acceptance that took place over the course of 2021, late 21, or mainly 2022. Massive. Students got in that wouldn't normally get in based on the parameters you just described. And there was this influx. Well, then then, then this year, an application process that started and it was the gates were closed. And a lot of students that would normally have gotten into these universities that met all the criteria and then some, well, they're, they're, they didn't get in. Is that a pattern you saw around the country or was that Florida specific? Oh, no, no, that was a pattern around the country. So people need to realize, you know, that colleges are a business, mm -hmm. right? They have a payroll to meet and they need to have $22 million come in because they're going to have $22 million go out. Mm -hmm. And if that's not going to be the case, they have to reduce headcount just like any other business. And people forget that, that. And a lot of schools are tuition driven. And what that means is they don't have hundreds of millions or billions Correct. sitting around in case they can't balance the budget. They've got, they may have an endowment, but they have very specific rules on how they can tap it and what's available and that type of thing. So, and that's pretty much every university for the most you know, part. Just, exactly. And universities are closing. I mean, they're just, especially on the lower end, so to speak, mm -hmm. if they're just not drawing enough students and they just can't balance the budget. They can't make it work. And so that, you know, and we're going to see more of that, I think. But the other important thing to realize is that less than half of the students that go to college these days or attend college, how, and they're not necessarily even going per se, they could be doing it from home. Um, but less than half of current students are the typical 18 year old on the campus type of student. Okay. More than half are adult learners and online learners and all these other different things. So, and in the adult area, we've seen a lot of innovation around, you know, they provide weekend labs or whatever, right? So you study during the week at home and then you go on a Saturday to do your in-person stuff or okay. it's all online or it's all, all these various things, right? Yeah, a lot of adaptations taking place. Right. And a lot of these people say, I don't really care about the football team. Show me where <laughs> I'm going to study or, you know, so it's a different process, right? Right. And... But there's still going to be that residential community as well. 
but it's not the only path. And it's starting to become a little more real where, again, you need to have an education, in my opinion, right? You're going to need something as you move out into the world, whether it's apprenticeships or a true four-year degree, a two-year degree, you know, something, mm-hmm. or even again, the school of hard knocks. And I'm not saying you can't learn on the job, <laughs> you know, go launch a business and figure right. it out. Right. All those things work. But I think that's the challenge of not everybody is cut out for the four-year degree. And then not everybody is going to go live on a campus and, and do it the way we've always done it. Right. And colleges are struggling with that where they're slow to change. And, you know, and again, a few of them are going to collapse under it. But other schools are talking about things like, well, why four years? Let's try three years and see how that works. Interesting. Um, And they're not just taking four years of material and squeezing it into three years. They're redesigning it from the ground up and just saying, we're going to do things differently. Um, There's schools out there that are very tied into their community. And they require everybody to take a semester off and go to work somewhere. Hmm. Every single graduate has had two or three internships by the time they graduate Okay, where they've been out in the real world. And many employers say, wow, that's great. Cause I think a lot of students need to be in the real world. Cause when they, <laughs> when they come here right out of school, they are really clueless. That could, I could right? see that. Right. We, we've heard, you know, again, you know, okay. Boomer, I guess is what they say. <laughs> right. But right. anyway, um, so, but that's the challenge, right? Is it's it's evolving, and parents need to keep up, yeah, and understand it's with your family. So, a theory here that I subscribed to for quite some time, and I could be wrong, was um, I had a I had the uh, essentially the, the president of a university that uh, another local university it was private lived across the street from me, and he said, Quentin, academia. And this was around 2011. He said, Quentin, academia has changed dramatically. The four-year degree is so diluted right now on purpose that the four-year degree you got is not the one that's being given today. And I mean that with all due respect. He said, but what we've done is that academia as a community, we have found a way to make that fifth year. If you can graduate in four, because sometimes the course curriculum is designed to where you can't get that in four unless you go to summer school, right? He said, but we've made it where that that fifth year, we're now calling it the MBA program. We can get it done in one year. And our goal is to get that student through to where we can go, yeah, but if you stay one more year, you'll have your MBA. And he said, we wanted to make it as seamless as possible to tack on that extra three letters there. And he goes, and then we've gone a step further and we've escalated that doctoral program. You can get that done in 18 months. And he goes, and that is all part of this new age budget that we were pursuing. I see you smiling as I'm, as I'm saying this. I'm sure you see this a lot uh, in the college aspect. In your opinion, is that a slippery slope or is that something that, I mean, I know it's different for each student, but is that a slippery slope to dilute that, to, to, to get to that level, to get that extra budgetary number there? Yeah. Well, again, again, and that's where I think where some schools really are a little more careful about protecting their long-term reputation. Okay. Right. So, I mean, in this day and age, you can get through high school with not knowing how to read. That's that's so scary. Right. Right. That's, and that's the truth. Right. And then there's probably a few universities where you can go on and get your degree and and continue to be, you know, a relatively poor student and then ultimately be a poor worker. Mm -hmm. So then we're, you know, the employers start to get jaded and say, well, kids that come from there, you know, there's no rigor there. So they're not really learning anything. They right. just get the degree. Right. 
So it's not unusual for, you know, you look at the, the broader picture, right? Somebody that's been working 10 years says, I want that job. And they say, well, you got to have a degree to get that job. So they say, okay, well, how do I get a degree? Not how can I go learn something? All they really want is a piece of paper that says I can have that job. Right. And they want to do it cheap and easy. And if they don't learn anything, they don't care. Well, so you're going to pay a lot of money to not learn. That seems, you know, right. When you say it out loud like mm-hmm. that, it seems ridiculous. But you take this typical 19-year-old. I mean, I've got kids in college. They love it when classes are canceled. It's like, well, wait a minute. We paid for those classes. You say, yeah, but they cancel the classes and then they don't have to do as much work and it's easier. And okay, yeah. So you don't learn anything. So that's your goal is to get a piece of paper and not learn a thing. Well, and then, and then they start to think about it, right? But the, again, the typical 18, 19, 20 year old is like, you know, it's not fair that I had worked so hard and someone taking a different section got that instructor and that instructor doesn't require anything. That instructor doesn't teach you anything either, but that's not the point. The point is it's so easy over there. How come I have to work so hard? Right. Well, that's a good thing, probably, but you know, students don't see it that way. Yeah. And that's that's where these all these quandaries are out there, right? Is am I after the degree or am I after the knowledge? And then if I have the knowledge, can you just give me the degree? Right. If I can go pass the bar exam, can I be a lawyer? I know I've got the knowledge. I can I can answer all the questions just like a lawyer could. Well, the question usually the answer is no. You have to have the degree to go with it. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, it's that balance of we well we got to protect the law degree. We don't right. can't let everybody have it. Then it'll get so diluted that it won't have any value. Yeah. So there's that kind of stuff going on where you know the successful want to protect their fiefdoms. Um, but there's also things like like you know you can go to Google and get Google certified and take you know, get training and the various Google advertising and whatever. And those certifications carry almost as much weight as some college degrees in computer science, as an example. I could completely see that. So it's it's all over the map. I think what's important is to realize that it's up to, you know, it's up to parents now to be the, the wise shopper and pay attention to, well, what is it we're getting for our money? And is it is, and what are our goals, right? Is that our student needs to grow up? Our student needs to learn, you know, a certain trade, right? There's a lot of majors out there where if you get this major, you get this job. And if you want that job, you got to have that major, right? I mean, mm-hmm. elementary ed teaching, right? There's, you take an elementary ed degree, you're qualified to become an ele- elementary ed teacher and they go hand in hand and there's, sure. you know, you're not going to break that much. What degree do you need to be a MRI salesman or to close tech deals you know, with the corporations that are going to send two hundred thousand dollars on a support package, what degree that person need? Right. Well, they need to be good at sales, and they can have any degree. That you know, and again, that's where a lot of the history majors ended up, or a lot of the the kids. You know, the kids that were going to be successful, no matter what degree they took. Well, mm-hmm. that's what they did: is they took some degree, whatever, learned a little bit about life, and were successful. There's quite a few schools that are starting to implement the sales degree. That to your point, right. they're starting to implement that. And, right. you know, it's a, I know a teacher that, uh, that our professor, I should say, who's actually wrote the curriculum and is instituting it right now at the University of Florida um, for exactly what you're saying, because they had so many alum. Now I come by and say, hey, I would like to contribute to your college, to the College of Business, but I'm looking for salespeople. And if you can find them for me, then I'm, in, I'm interested. And it just kind of sparked this notion. And, uh, and they've done a really good job developing that over there. And so have other schools I'm, I'm aware of this one in particular, but other schools are doing it as well. So hey, here's a question that uh, has just you know popped into my head as we're talking here. So college applications, you're applying, what's the threat of AI in the college application process? 
especially on the, you know, the essay part. What's the threat of that in this process here early on in this stage? Yeah. Well, you know, there, there is some ability to detect it and okay. they're trying to, you know, trying to clamp down on it and say, thou shalt not do it, which is very <laughs> short-sighted in my opinion, again. Sure. But, I mean, here's the reality. When you're the boss and you say, I need you to write, you know, 700 words that's going to sell this widget. And, and then you go to the boss and say, well, I could use AI and have it done in 20 minutes, or I could sit over there and work on it for three days. What do you prefer? Sure. You know, the boss can say, go use AI. Yeah. As long as it's accurate, go use it. Right. I mean, you could argue, you know, there's the, this has been going on since they invented, you know, forever, probably. Right. But when they invented the calculator, you know, should you be allowed to take a calculator to a math test? That seems unfair. Well, obviously, to this day and age, you you certainly can and are required to show up with calculators at most of the math because that's the reality is, you know, we want you to use the tools that are available. Where AI as a tool is going to fit in, you know, five years, 10 years from now, it's going to be, we're going to look back on it like the argument over the calculator or the argument over word processing, right? The fact that sure. word will tell me, oh, that's the wrong there. I know it should be spelled the other there and just changes it for me. Well, I wish I had that when I was in college. Sure. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I didn't. And I got that wrong. Um, <laughs> but it, everything kind of advances. So, I, you know, in, in the short term, yes, there's a lot of how are we going to deal with it and issues. In the long run, it's just one more thing on the, on the pile. And uh, Understood. So, hey, as, as we, as we kind of wrap up and head towards the, 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 the end of these questions that we got here, here's one that's kind of, I want to make sure the audience walks away with a couple of hits here. What's the biggest mistake parents are making right now? I mean, again, the, the just do it, start okay. early. Commit. Don't, you know, don't procrastinate, get, get after it. Okay. I think especially in the late stage of, um, and we didn't talk much about this, but when you fill out financial aid, as an example, it's based on taxes that you filled out your starting your sophomore year. Okay. So you got, you know, by you got to start thinking about what's going to be on my taxes and how's that going to impact college freshman year and early sophomore year. You can't start thinking about a junior and senior year because what you're going to discover is, oh, the taxes that they're going to look at are already done and filed and nothing I can do to fix them. Right. I wish I would have known that. So be smart, be smart about your filings, right? Take as many of the deductions as you can. If you don't need a home loan and you don't need to show it to a lender, get really in there with your CPA and get as much deducted to get that number down is what you're saying. That's a solid piece of advice. Right, exactly. And there's lots you can do from a predicting your financial aid. If we do this instead of that, financial aid will be different. Okay. Both federal aid and college scholarships. You know, so there's a lot of, we, we did a lot of high level stuff. Mm -hmm. There's a whole lot of tactics where you can say, you know what, if I save for retirement this way instead of that way, it'll save on taxes, it'll make financial aid turn out better. It's a win-win across the board. And well, then you probably would want to do it. But, and there's just a gazillion tactics. So, I mean, we could talk about that for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> and the challenge is some, some tactics, you know, if you're a business owner, you've got opportunities that other people don't have. If you've got an athlete, you've got opportunities that other people don't have. So there's the core planning, then there's all the complications like divorce and blended families and mm -hmm. inheritance and multiple kids in college and, you know, on and on. Right. So, you know, this is the starting point for most people. It's not, okay, well, I'm glad I learned all that. I'm done now. No, now what you've learned is 
you've got hours and hours of learning ahead of you. Yeah, I think just for our audience perspective, we pre-show Brad goes, hey, I don't know how much time you have. And I'm like, well, you know, you're our guest, 45 minutes to an hour. I mean, as much as you want. And he chuckled, he goes, well, I think what we're going to talk about today is about seven hours worth of stuff. So that's why, you know, I still have, I have 150 plus episodes of my podcast, he said, and I'm still not done. So perspective wise, and we're going to tell the audience where they can go to listen to that podcast and also your services. There, We're just, we're just, we're barely touching the surface here. We're just trying to get the thoughts going so that you can go, okay, crap, I'm in the late phase or I'm in the early phase. And okay, I know I need to start saving, but whoa, I need to reach out to Brad or someone like Brad immediately right. for where I'm at here. Um, and, and that's kind of where we are. And then uh, maybe we are doing the shock thing to scare you a little bit just to get you going, whatever it takes. But the reality is it's going to sneak up on you. And uh, to, to his point, you know, it's uh, a, <laughs> you need someone to help guide you through this path. You know, you mentioned earlier, are there any bad loans? I mean, at the, at, at the student loan level, are there any loans people should avoid and not look at? Right. Well, yeah, and I guess we didn't finish that discussion, but we talked about the federal loans and they're the loans to beat. Okay. People with great credit can go to the private loan sector and go to a private student loan or get a, get a home equity line of credit or all kinds of different ways Okay. and beat those interest rates and come up with better terms and conditions. Okay. But if you're not a strong borrower, then the private community will often have terms and conditions that are awful, right? I right. mean, you probably have heard about or seen, mm-hmm. you know, the student loan at 9% or 12% or awful. something that's, you know, predatory in right. most people's opinions. And you look at that and say, well, they could have t- just gone and got the plus loan at 8%, mm-hmm. but they somehow got this 12%. I know, how did that happen? You know, again, we don't know exactly, but right, that's the reality, right? Is So yes, there are definitely bad loans. And most of these loans are variable rate, correct? Most student loans are variable. Some of well, some of them are variable. Well, so all the federal loans are fixed. Again, okay, that's great. In that, but they're fixed every year. So you get a <laughs> get a batch of loans your freshman year. They're fixed at whatever interest rate they are. Mm-hmm. You get a new batch your sophomore year, and whatever the current interest rates are, you lock in those at that rate. So you'll have a bunch of loans at a bunch of different rates. Yes, all the students in 2019 through 2021 got great rates on their federal loans. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Right. When interest rates were low, student loans were were great. Now they've risen quite a bit. Student loans are still at a decent rate. I think the and this is available on my website, but I think it's five and a half percent for the student and about eight percent for the parents on the federal loans. Right. And this is loans that for kids that are starting college coming up this fall. So and we don't know what they will be any year following. So yeah. Another quick tip, and I imagine this is probably in your in your your bag of tricks because you've got a lot of them here. I've been reading on the website, but you know that student you mentioned earlier that can go get that five and a half right now, but they're only lendable up to a certain amount, as you explained. Maybe it's lack of credit, income, whatever. There's some things you can do to position that student to be a strong credit borrower out the gate that may get more than that five thousand dollar allotment we were talking about. It may position them, uh, you know, getting their credit built up at an early age and then also maybe even having them have some sort of income, whether it's coming in uh, through a business you own or something of that nature. You could position them to where they could get more money than just the five thousand dollars that we talked about earlier, correct? Well, yeah. Well again, there's a lot of free aid in and the work study, but generally students, you know, just are not going to be able to borrow more in their name without parent co-signing. Okay. But again, if that's where we're at, it's really not based on the student's credit. It's based on the parent's credit. Okay. So a parent can kind of lend their fantastic credit rating and their strong income to the student by saying, you sign up for the loan. It's your loan, but I'll co-sign it. Okay. Well, from an underwriting perspective, they're just looking at the parent. Gotcha. And realizing that the parent's going to be the backstop. And if the student doesn't pay, we'll, we'll go after the parent or grandparent or whoever's co-signing. Okay. Um, but why people would go to that 
would be the, again that student that loan is in the student's name so it looks like their loan when the bills come they come to the student whereas the plus loan is in the parent's name and there's no way to shift it to the student gotcha forever yep. parents you can finance it and shift it to the student but the student has to qualify then for that kind of loan which means they're out and working and building a strong credit rating and are able to take it over from a full underwriting perspective you can't just say i want to sign it to the kid now because i don't want to deal with it you, it doesn't work that way. Is there any way to avoid income-based repayment loans from a student's perspective? Uh, pay the bill. Okay. <laughs> Don't borrow. I mean, that's <laughs> right. I mean, the income-based repayment is the federal system. Yep. Um, you know, so you can skip the federal system and go directly to the private system, but now you need mom and dad's, you know, and then the you know, it's, it's like shopping for a mortgage or a boat loan, right? You can, there's all kinds of opportunities out there. Some of them are teaser rates. When you actually, you know, dive into it to try and get the loan, you realize, oh, that you know, they said two percent, but really it's four and a half. When they, by the time they went through my credit and everything, yeah, and that's the challenge. I think is just like anything else. They they put the teaser rate out there, and you know, there's laws that that you know they have to give it to somebody, but that somebody's got the perfect credit score and the perfect repayment and high income, and and everybody else gets something that much worse than that. You know, so there's that game that goes on, especially in the private student loan markets mm -hmm. of, you know, on the fringes. But I think the, um, you know, as we're wrapping up here, the important thing to realize for parents is the game has changed. You mentioned very early on, and I want that, well, all this stuff wasn't like this when I did it. And that's absolutely true, <laughs> right? I mean, the way parents did college, there wasn't a lot of help, but now there are lots of people out there that help. Right. There's people that help students choose majors and what do they want to be when they grow up and write essays and fill out applications and choose colleges and all that kind of stuff. And then there's people like me that tend to focus on helping the parents. Mm -hmm. How are we going to pay for this? Are we going to qualify for aid? How do we avoid tax? You know, can we avoid taxes while paying for college? How to make this all come together, you know, from a financial standpoint? You know, and again, and we talk about choosing colleges because it has a financial impact, but right. Right. I, you know, if you said, can you help my student write an essay? It's like, no, that's not my skill set. I know people like that. And I, I've got a number of people I can refer you to. But for a lot of people, you know, the experts are out there now. It's just how do you find them? You know, again, that, and that's my biggest challenge, right? Is people don't know I exist, so they don't come and, and find me as as easily as they could. It's, you know, and I, another analogy, you know, if your student came to you and said, you know, I'd love to learn how to play the piano and you say, oh, yeah, I, I would agree. <laughs> Your first thought isn't, I'm going to go learn how to play the piano so I can teach my student how to play the piano, right? You're going to say, well, we can hire that old lady. You know, we think of that old lady with the ruler standing over the piano where the kid's practicing. Well, I'm thinking that's old school too, right? To right. make sure you can learn piano online. Right. Whether it's online with somebody where you're actually, you know, Zoom, you know, playing the piano together. Or whether it's online lessons at a low cost, you know, there's lots of options. Sure. And that's where, you know, colleges become, you know, I offer a course. I've got a lot of free materials. You know, I do work with families one-on-one -on -one as well. And there's a lot of other experts out there that do the same. Again, courses that help students write essays or whatever it might be. And of course, all this knowledge is written down and put in books. If you want to go read books about it, right? <laughs> Absolutely. But, you know, keep well, it a secret. Put it in a book. That's right. That's a good one. So hey, if our audience does want to learn more about this, like you said, they maybe have not been able to connect to you yet. What's the best way for them to find out more about what your services are, what you offer? Obviously, they can tune in the podcast, Taming the Higher Cost of College. But you know, your website, some information about you. Brad, where can they find you? 
TamingTheHighCostOfCollege.com is my website. And, you know, podcast by the same name, wherever podcasts are sold, as they say. <laughs> um, but at the website, you know, there are free resources that you can click. You can, There's a phone number there if you want to call. You can click through and schedule appointments. You can sign up for our newsletter and, and you know, start getting information sent out to you on a regular basis. Can kind of remind you to keep working at this okay. at whatever, you know, whatever works for you. And, you know... We're out there, so reach out if you need some help. Yeah, guys, it's never too early to start, and you got to commit to part of the process. Brad's definitely one of the experts, and it's a great website, super informative. You can find yourself getting lost in it. There's tons of information on there. Speaking of that, if you like what you're hearing today, please five-star this podcast, review, share it with friends and family. This is a wonderful topic. It's hitting right home right now. We're going to have some graphs. We're going to have some charts, links to Brad's website, all on our YouTube channel. If you subscribe, you'll be able to get to those. Again, Brad, thanks for being on the show. It was great having you today. Really appreciate your time and expertise and uh, definitely enlightening myself and our audience on the college world and, and what we're all getting ready to face here over the next couple of years. Thank you again. Yeah, thanks for having me. I got one more shot, I'm gonna make it. One more chance, I'm gonna take it. I meant it when I said it, now it's time for me to do it. I got one life to live, so I put all into it, yeah.